Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Howard Bloom has lived many lives. He was a nerdy 12-year-old who spent his time building a Boolean algebra machine and seemed destined for a career in science. Instead, he wound up doing public relations for some of the biggest rock and roll stars in the industry, including Paul Simon, Billy Joel, Queen, Kiss, Bette Midler, ZZ Top, and many more. Prince, for example. His latest book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me details his career path and gives an insider's view of, of some of the greatest musicians and performers of all time. It's published by Backbeat Books, and I'm very pleased that it's brought Howard Bloom to our show. Welcome. Leonard, it's a pleasure. I only wish we could see each other in person. And I only wish we had a lot more time because there are just so many things in this book that I wanted to talk about, and I, I know we're not going to get to everything. But before we talk about your book, I want to ask you about how you're feeling. Uh, weren't you terribly sick, almost bedridden for 15 years? Well, I actually was bedridden for 15 years. For five years, I was too weak to talk and too weak to have another person in the room with me. It was a, a case of myalgic, myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. It was nasty, and I got out of bed in 2003, so I've been remarkably fit and healthy ever since then. I'm walking six miles a day. I'm doing... 1,220 vibrational plankings in the morning. Uh, it's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty amazing given what what I was enduring for those 15 years locked in a bedroom. And you live near Prospect Park, so you would you still do those morning walks in in Prospect Park? Well, although I, now I, you're keeping a safe distance from other people, I hope. I'm keeping a very safe distance from other people, but I'm getting in those six miles a day. Uh, walking in Prospect Park uh, uh, during the day. Of course, the place is like a continual picnic. People are out there all over the place and dodging other people and staying 10 feet away is not easy. And then at night, um, when I go back for my second walk, it is totally empty. I've got the complete park to myself. Had your illness and your relative confinement given you an opportunity to write? Well, you know, I started writing a book. I started putting, doing the research in 1981. Um, I, I organized the material in 1984. Um, I started to uh, write it around 1986, and it was half-written, my very first book, The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History. It was half-written, and then whammo, I got mm -hmm. sick. So I finished writing. I wrote three books while I was in bed, and I founded two international scientific groups while I was in bed through the miracle of what we're well, I guess we're not using it right now, but through the miracle of the Internet. You, uh, have you, you've had a pretty amazing career, but do you, have you ever regretted not going to Columbia on the fellowship that they offered you? Not a bit. I mean, I, it was a, a, a do-it-yourself neuroscience program since there was no field called neuroscience at that time. And uh, it meant that I was going to be allowed to take courses in the med school in order to get the physiological side of things and courses in, the, in clinical psychology to get the psychological side of things. And then I was going to have to paste it together myself. But being in academia, I regarded academia at that point as Auschwitz for the mind. Because what had fascinated me since I was 12 and 13 years old was the ecstatic experience, um, the experience of... Uh, well, 
Um, Emil Durkheim calls it uh, collective effervescence. It's this experience of being rising into something much higher than yourself, much larger than yourself, and being taken over by passions that you don't normally know and over which you have very little control. And uh, I started looking for that when I was 12 or 13. Then I heard about a book called The Varieties of the Religious, religious Experience um, by William James and got mm-hmm. all excited because it sounded like he had been on the same quest I was on. It took me something like six months to track down a copy of that book in a book for city, Buffalo, New York, and I finally got one. And it was as if William James had said, look, you've been in science for the last two years of your life. I got into theoretical physics and microbiology at the age of 10. Well, I actually was 14 when I was reading this, so I've been in science for four years. Um, And he basically seemed to say, I'm leaving these astonishing experiences by people like um, St. Teresa um, on a lab bench for you. I don't have the tools, the scientific tools, with which to explain these things in my time, 1902. When you come along, you will have new scientific tools. So I'm leaving this to you as one of your tasks. And uh, strangely, that's how I ended up getting involved in the music industry instead of going to grad school. Although music came later, you didn't seem to be all that interested when you were a kid, at least not rock and roll. You cite the first two rules of science. What are they and how do they apply uh, when you were doing public relations uh, for rock and roll acts? Oh, they the first two rules of science. I'm sitting in my family's big living room in Buffalo, New York. Um, I don't realize what a privileged kid I am. My parents were poor when I was born, but when I was eight, they managed to buy a house sandwiched in between a Frederick Olmsted Park. Frederick Olmsted, the park is the greatest park designer of all time, mm-hmm. who created Central Park and created Prospect Park, where I now walk, and uh, in back of our house, a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Um, so I, I didn't realize that I was being privileged by living in this design sandwich. And one day, the, this book appears in my lap. And God knows where it comes from, because, you know, when you're a little kid, 10 years old, you know the location of every book in the house. They've been there since you were born. Um, this is a book that had never been there before. And the book said the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo. And it told the Galileo story all wrong. It told it as if Galileo had been willing to go to the stake to defend his truth. Um, It took me 30 years to find out that that wasn't the case. Galileo had made a deal with the Pope, who was a friend of his, and had had said no. He'd said goodbye to all of his most precious beliefs in exchange for house arrest. But I needed the heroic version of the story, and that was the version that this tale gave me. Um, The second rule of science said the book, is look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for things that everyone around you and you take for granted and thus are invisible to you, and flush them into the realm of visibility, and then proceed from there. So the first rule of science is the rule of courage. The second rule of science, the first one being the the truth at any price, including the price of your life, the second rule of science, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, is the rule of awe, wonder, and curiosity. And, yeah. uh, and, and those two rules had everything to do with the way that I did publicity in the music industry. Um, because I had a motto. I thought I had adopted it from economics. 
It was good information drives out bad. In other words, truth drives out falsehoods. Um, and I applied that motto. Um, it was a matter of the truth at any price, including the price of your life, as far as I was concerned. Um, and so one day, for example, I'm sitting at my big desk in Manhattan on 53rd Street near Lexington Avenue, and I get a phone call from Warner Brothers Records. And the uh, VP of Publicity for Warner Brothers Records says, um, you just put out a press release saying John Mellencamp has the biggest selling album of 1983. And I said, that's right. And the VP said, uh, well, I've got news for you. John Mellencamp did not have the biggest selling album of 1983. Asia had the biggest selling album of 1983. Um, or Europa, or God knows. It was a band that Warner said concocted from nothing that year. Um, and I said, no, I've looked at the figures. I've worked them all out. John Mellencamp has the biggest selling album of 1983. And Bob Merlis, this VP from Warner Brothers, said, no, you don't understand me. Look, we control a third of the music industry. CBS controls another third of the music industry. The folks at CBS are my friends. Um, if John Mellencamp has the biggest sell selling album of 1983, you will never get another act from either Warner's or CBS again. Your career will be toast. Mm. And I said, look, I've been through all the statistics. Um, John Mellencamp has the biggest sell selling album of 1983. If you can show me the figures demonstrating that Asia has the biggest selling album of 1983, I will personally put out a press release saying that Asia has the biggest album, selling album of 1983. Until then, John Mellencamp has the biggest selling album of 1983, and we hung up, hung up the phone. And I got a call 10 minutes later from John Mellencamp, which was very unusual because it was probably one of only two times in my entire life when John has ever called me without uh, any appointment. And um, I told John what had just happened, because John, he used to pose as the little bastard. He thought he was a real tough guy. And, and I'm a wimp. I'm the science nerd. I'm the kid that other kids call the sickly scientist. Um, and I told John what had happened. And you, Leonard, you could hear the yellow liquid filling up his body and floating in his eyeballs. He was scared. And he said, Howard, Howard, you should not have done that. Well, I did it. It was the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And 15 years later, John Mellencamp would say, thank you for doing that. You, you were responsible for the uh, amount of money that I've made today. Um, yeah, but why were they making the claim? What was the, what was the truth of the matter? Uh, the truth of the matter was that John Mellencamp had, had, had the biggest album, selling album of 1983. Um, a clever um, talent scout at Warner Brothers had cobbled together this band, band of experienced British musicians. Um, he thought he was a genius. I believe it was John David Kolodner who did that, and he was in certain ways a genius. Um, and Warner's was going to hype this band for all it was worth. So Warner's didn't care about what was true and what was not. Um, in order to sell a lot of albums, it was a sort of band in the style of Boston, which had sold a lot of albums that year, um, they were going to say whatever they needed to say to position this as the album of 1983. Unfortunately, it wasn't true. And John Mellencamp is still around in some form today, and Asia is not. Now, much of your book is about looking for soul in yourself, right. in your clients, and in rock and roll audiences. 
but aren't you an atheist? Uh, did you, don't you have to be religious to believe in soul? Not at all. I mean, I've been called a material mystic. I've been on the track of religious experiences ever since I was 12 years old. And um, from, as a scientist, as an atheist, but soul is that, well, you must have had this experience at one time or another. You go out on a dance floor, um, it's a Friday night or it's a Saturday night, you have a few drinks in you or some drugs in you or whatever it is that you use, I don't use any of those things, but the music grabs hold of you and you go into a kind of frenzy. And for 10 or 15 minutes, you are totally out of yourself. You are being danced as if you are a marionette, as if you are a puppet. Um, something deeper inside of you that normally has no space in your conscious self or your verbal self has utterly taken you over. Well, if I'm going to find the soul inside of you, that's the soul I need to find. Because if you are a performing artist, you sit in front of a blank computer screen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon knowing you have to write a lyric. And you are absolutely certain that you, couldn't, you can never write a lyric in your life. and You have no idea of how you've written any of your previous lyrics. And by 4 in the afternoon on a reasonably good day, there's a lyric in front of you. Maybe once or twice in your life, the lyric feels so perfect that it feels as if it wrote itself through you, that you were just a conduit, a pipe. And when you go on stage and you see, you see the audience, the faces of the audience melting, you see their pupils dilating, open, opening wide, and you feel their collective energy come together as if they're a giant amoebic blob, and that amoeba reaches a pseudopod out to you and sends all of its energy, whether it's the energy of 700 people or 70,000 people, coursing through you as if you were an empty pipe. It goes up to some region around your head. It is utterly transmogrified and sent back down to the audience. And it's a continuous loop. It's a reverberatory circuit. Um, and when you come, when you, by the way, have the experience of being on the ceiling and watching all this happen down below you. And you see your own body being danced by these forces of the audience and whatever it is that's transmogrifying everything. You come off stage, it takes you an hour to come back to yourself. It takes an hour for your normal verbal personality to come back to your body. And if I'm going to be your publicist, then I, told, I would tell you, look, if you want me to fashion an artificial image for you, if you want me to fashion an artificial mask and tell you that that's going to make you a star, then I'm going to send you to my best competitor. If you're going to work with me, you have to know that music is an exchange of soul. It is not an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not an exchange of money. It is not an exchange of downloads. It is an exchange of raw human soul. And if you're willing to accept that premise and allow me certain conditions, allow me to study you for a month, everything that you've ever written, everything that's ever been written about you, everything I can find that you've ever done, and then come out to your environment and meet with you in your environment face-to-face -face with no managers, no wives, no intercessors of any kind, I will find the soul inside of you that wrote that lyric in the afternoon. I will find the soul inside of you, the gods inside of you, that danced you when you are on stage. That is your soul, a passionate part of you, more intense than any normal you. My guest on today's London Thopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Howard Bloom, whose latest book is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Um, so what does Einstein come into this? Uh, Einstein definitely loved music. He was a scientist who loved music. 
Uh, is that the link? No, he had great personal significance for me. I was 12 years old. I grew up without friends, and I grew up without parents. My parents were too busy for me. Other kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. Because you were a nerd. Well, God knows why, Leonard. I'm not quite sure why I was so out of sync with other kids that they couldn't stand to have me around. But that was the state of things. And, um, and I grew up reading two books a day, um, one book under the desk at school and another, another book when I got home. And most of those books were either science fiction or serious, very serious science. So I was called the sickly scientist by the other kids. And one day a girl rolled her eyes in my direction. And Leonard, it had never happened to me before. And then she did something even more shocking. She made eye contact, which is something utterly strange and unknown to me. And she said, I told my mother that you understand the theory of relativity. Well, back in those days, the reputation was that Einstein originally, when he came out with theory, only three men could understand it. By the 1950s, when this was happening to me, seven men, according to reputation, could understand the theory. Well, I didn't dare confess that I didn't understand the theory of relativity, (laughs) or I'd lose even the one title I had, the sickly scientist. So I got on my bicycle as soon as school was over. I pedaled over to the local library where the librarians literally knew me better than my mother did and um, said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they rummaged around in the back, and they came up with two books. One was a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators, and the other was a little skinny book by Einstein himself. So I pedaled home, and I had learned by that age, 12, that if you read the hardest thing and you don't think you've understood a single word of it, by the time you reach the end, somehow on some level, normally at a gut level, you have understood something. So I started to tackle the big book first. And the big book was all mathematical equations with about seven words of English on each page. And Leonard, I've never understood mathematical equations in my life. I could write about them, but I don't understand them. Yeah, so um, I got 50 pages into the book. It was 8 o'clock at night, and I suddenly realized I've got another 300 pages left to go in this book, (laughs) and I've only got two hours before my mom sends me to bed, and if I don't understand the theory of relativity in the next two hours, I'll be humiliated at school tomorrow. So I turned to the little skinny book, and then something magic happened. It was a book entirely by Einstein himself. It had a little introduction by Einstein himself. And it felt, for the very first time in my life, as if an author had reached out through the pages, grabbed me by the lapels, put his nose up to my nose, and said, Schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it is not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to come up with that theory, and then you have to be able to explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Einstein, when I was 12 years old, had given me marching orders. If I wanted to be an original scientific thinker, I was going to have to be a writer. And not just a good writer, but an astonishingly clear writer. And preferably a writer whose work was delicious, whose work you couldn't put down. So that became one of my goals as an obligation of being a scientific thinker. And I became very serious about my writing. So that's Einstein's role in this equation, because without and, the writing, I would never have ended up in the world of rock and roll. Well, it's, it starts with you becoming an editor at the literary magazine at NYU, and then surprisingly, 
despite some of the things you published there, um, a, you rewrote portions of the Boy Scouts Handbook. But all of that led you to getting involved with Circus Magazine? Yes, because the Boy Scouts, that, first of all, the Boy Scouts had thrown me out at the age of 11 um, for incompetence at Morse code. And if they hadn't thrown me out for that, <laughs> they could have thrown me out for incompetence and not dying. Um, it was a big year for me thrown out of things. I had been thrown out of violin lessons. My violin teacher got so angry that he smashed the violin and it flew <laughs> across the room and it hit the velvet drapes. Unfortunately, because of the velvet drapes, fell to the floor harmlessly. I'd been thrown out of a trombone class. I, no, the teacher never even gave a reason. He simply threw me out. Um, and um, so, but, but the first summer of my uh, NYU, my four years at NYU, um, I wanted to get a job in editorial since I've been working so hard for so many years at writing. And since I've been the editor of literary magazine and we'd won two National Academy of Poets prizes, and I had written by that point for the head of the Middle, Middlesex County Mental Health Clinic in New Brunswick, New Jersey, my first science writing job. Um, and so I went through the New York Times and I made a list of all 99 um, employment agencies that advertised editorial work. Um, and I went methodically through that list and I was all the way down to company number 98. And I'd got 97 turndowns. And finally, at 98, on a list of 99, the person on the other end of the phone said, I think I've got something for you. Could you come in tomorrow? So I went in, and it turned out they had a job as a copy, um, a proofreader, and an editor at the Boy Scouts of America, of all places, at the Boy Scouts of America World Headquarters in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And so I, I took the bus out to New Brunswick every day, and first they gave me some proofreading assignments, and somehow they determined within 24 hours that I should be an editor. And then they determined within another 24 hours that I should be a writer, and they gave me my first assignment. The Boy Scout Handbook, the basic book of Boy Scouting, had a chapter on masturbation. And the chapter on masturbation says you shouldn't do it because your eyeballs will fall out <laughs> and a long black hair will grow from your left palm, three feet long. Um, and those were no longer credible reasons for not masturbating. So my job, nobody even told me what my job was. It just became obvious when I read the previous chapter that I was going to replace. My job became to come up with a new 1960s reason why you should not masturbate. So I came up with guilt. You'll feel guilty. Um, and wrote that chapter. And I, they felt I did such a good job on it that they put me to work um, writing the Boy Scout handbooks on stalking and tracking and on camouflage. And I learned that I cannot find my way into the woods, much less out of them. Um, but I felt that if I was going to tell kids how to stalk and track, I was going to have to get that art down absolutely perfectly because I wanted those kids to be able to sneak up on a bunny rabbit it, so successfully that the rabbit didn't even know, even know they were there until their nose was rubbing noses with the rabbit's nose. So much um, of this is about learning about the thing that you're going to be doing. You uh, got involved with Circus Magazine, as I said. The publisher said he wanted Circus to read like Time Magazine, but it was about rock and roll, and you didn't know much about rock and roll at the time. So you, did you go about learning about it in the same way that you uh, wanted to learn about uh, Einstein's theories? Yes. Um, I started, uh, there were some music magazines coming out of England on a, a weekly basis, New Musical Express and Melody Maker. But wait, the lesson of the Boy Scouts was 
as long as you love your audience, you really care about them, you can write about absolutely anything with proper research materials. So when I was asked to edit Circus, all I was asked was, do you want to edit a magazine? And uh, my but you had never yes. been to a you'd never even been to a rock and roll performance, hadn't you? I'd at that been point? to one. I'd been to one Country Joe and the Fish concert, um, and uh, and I I might have spent a few seconds at a Jefferson Airplane concert. That was about it. Um, that was not my natural milieu. But again, because of the Boy Scout experience, I felt that if I if I loved my audience, I could write about anything given proper research materials. So when I was asked about the magazine, I didn't even ask what subject it was about. And when I showed up at the office of the publisher, we did not have Google in those days. So you had no way of figuring out who this person was you were about to meet with. And he explained that his magazine's name was Circus, and I thought, oh, Elephants and Clowns. Um, it turned out to be about rock and roll. So, yes, I did exactly what you implied. I sat down and let me like a Talmudic scholar, and I started studying rock and roll. And I started studying my audience. I started uh, putting together all kinds of interactive, um, no-cost market research things that would enable me to take the temperature of my audience to see what kind of paragraphs they liked, what kind of artists they liked, everything I could find out about them I wanted to find out. And you, and you got interested in the evolution of pop music in a chapter uh, titled A Tale of Two Hormones. You discuss that evolution. Um, uh, what? Could you give us a brief summary and how uh, you say the music evolved to affect men and women differently? Yeah. Um, it, the popular music that I was able to track down really got started in the uh, 1880s with the cakewalk, which is a typical thing in America. You have black music, and it's adapted for a white audience, and it takes off like crazy. The cakewalk was a black dance. It had a black rhythm, and it became wildly successful among white people. And uh, up until about 1940, 1945, um, music was a, something that the youth used to get out of their parents' presence, to dance, to neck, to have their own private lives together, and to rebel against their parents. So, for example, there was a form, another form of black music that had been adapted for a white audience that was so disreputable that it was named after human sperm. The street term for human sperm was jizz, and the music was called jizz, or mispronounced as jazz. And if kids were going to a jazz concert together, it would be a boy and a girl going to dance all night, and their parents would be shocked and horrified that they were going to hear this music uh, and dance to this music named after sperm. I mean, give me a break, of all things. Um, and then in the 1930s, replacing jazz there was another form of virtually the same music, but with a higher tempo, called swing. And again, kids dressed in a manner that horrified their parents, um, and they went out dancing to this new swing music. And the Episcopal Bishop of New York said that every single swing record that existed should be taken and burned, because swing was the primrose path to hell. And then in 1945, something very peculiar happened to music. Uh, America was at war, and all the eligible young men were called away. And you had a lot of very, very horny girls um, who had no source of sexual satisfaction. They could no longer go out in a portable bedroom called a car, you know, two couches on wheels, um, with boys the way they had in the jazz era of the 20s uh, or in the swing era of the 1930s. Um, instead, 
one day there was a, a singer performing at a Paramount Theater near Times Square in New York. And he was performing at noontime, and that's when all the girls, uh, who had no boys around, um, got out of work and could come and see the concert during lunchtime. And the girls saw him, and they started screaming and fainting. It is said that possibly some of them fainted because they hadn't eaten their lunch. At any rate, um, he was held over for a second date, and the same thing happened. The place packed with girls screaming and fainting. He was held over eventually for something like 35 nights. Um, of what somebody called riots. Um, his name was Frank Sinatra. And all of a sudden, the nature of popular music changed. It was, not just a, it was not just a home for young people who wanted to fling a finger in the face of their parents um, and go out dancing together. Now, it was a matter of young men who girls could scream and cream about. Um, well, that, that, that happens with rock and roll, with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who played yeah. to stadiums full of screaming girls, but but uh, boys loved them as well. Did What's they that? just like them for different reasons? Um, did, did they scream for different reasons? I, I missed a word there somewhere. Well, were, did they, did they uh, support the groups? Were, were they big fans for different reasons? Um, well, in, in the case, first there was Frank Sinatra. He was the one that all these riots were taking place for. Um, then it was accepted in the music industry when Elvis Presley came along that uh, you had to appeal to a bunch of screaming girls. So they managed to get lots and lots of screaming girls for Elvis Presley. Then it was accepted still as the norm, if you were going to be a big star, that you got crowds of screaming, fainting girls for the Rolling Stones and for the Beatles. But there was a certain amount of connivory going on here. Um, in order to make sure that there were screaming girls at the airport, there was a promotion man whose name has disappeared, unfortunately, uh, and I could not find, who uh, bust girls out to the airport mm. to be there when the Beatles showed up to scream and faint on cue. And then, having seen that that's what worked for the Beatles, not to mention Elvis Presley, not to mention Frank Sinatra, um, the people handling the Rolling Stones hired a woman named Connie Denave, um, to go out and wrangle girls and bring them out to the airport to scream and faint for the Beatles. This is what's called in the book supernormal stimuli. You can give uh, uh, a, a, um, a seabird um, when she settles down into her nest. If she accidentally knocks an egg out, um, she, she sticks her beak out and she hauls the egg back in by shoveling the egg with her beak over and over again. And you can make a super egg that is so much more successful at getting her to do that tucking of her beak in, trying to get it into her nest, that she utterly ignores her very own egg. It's called a supernormal stimulus. Well, um, rock and rollers were supernormal stimuli for girls, um, if we can call them rock and rollers at the time. But a change happened with the Beatles. First of all, they had the audacity. Elvis had not written his own music, and Frank Sinatra had not written his own music. And the would-be Elvis, Elvises, like Frankie Avalon, did not write their own music by any stretch of the imagination. The Beatles had the audacity to write their own music, and when they sang songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand, they got, they got the usual crowds of screaming, fainting girls. But when they started to write songs that pertained more accurately to the lifestyle of the kids that they were catalyzing, um, then their audience began to change. And then they began to attract young men. And by the end of the 1960s, because of what the Beatles had established, there were these things called bands, rock and roll bands. 
and they were entirely for a male audience. Their audience was 80% male, whereas the audience for Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley um, had been 80% female. So but in Circus ma Magazine, you featured acts like Alice Cooper and David Bowie because yes. of their sexual ambiguity? Uh, well, I had to do the following. Um, I, I told you I was reaching out in every way I could to find what my audience loved. And my, my publisher had given me two um, European magazines, Bravo and Salut Les Copains. And Bravo and Salut Les Copains sold uh, a million copies in France and a million copies in Germany. And that, in a market a fifth the size of the United States. And he had said, how do I achieve these kinds of sales in the United States? I had stolen something from Salut Les Copains. It had a uh, top 20. And the top 20 was compiled entirely on the basis of reader ballots. So you had to buy a copy of the magazine, rip out the ballot, and send it in to boost your favorite act. Um, I did the same thing with Circus. And it gave me a daily reading on what my audience was really interested in. And it turned out that there was one act that my audience was interested in twice as much as any other act on planet Earth at that time. And it was Alice Cooper. And coming in at number two, but a very poor number two, with half the number of votes, was David Bowie. And what did these acts have in common? Androgyny. Um, absolute androgyny. Did I ever figure out why my white suburban male audience was interested in androgynous men? I came up with a theory, but it was only a theory. Um, one way or the other. And you have to I make it to quick because i got to go to a break. Okay, I had to find out what my audience loved and give it to them. So I gave them Alice Cooper, every single issue. And his name was actually Vince Fernier, but yes. we'll get to that. We'll talk a bit more <laughs> about that in, in a little bit. Uh, this is Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. a little taste of something from one of Howard uh, Bloom's more famous clients after he got into public relations. He's written a book about his experiences called Einstein, Michael Jackson and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. It is published by Backbeat Books and we'll get to Prince and Michael Jackson and so many of the others, ZZ Top, etc. in just a moment. But how did you get into public relations? Was being a writer or love of poetry helpful in, in doing PR work? Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, all the writers, uh, like me, were English literature majors. Now, look, my whole background was in science. And by the time I got to college, I spent my life in science. 
but Einstein, again, had told me you've got to be a really good writer. And so I figured, okay, I'll put my science on a back burner and concentrate for four years on writing, and I majored in English literature. It was extremely helpful because all the writers, the rock writers, were English literature majors. Um, and when it came to, to listening to lyrics, Ozzy Osbourne's uh, actually was Black Sabbath lyrics and writing about them. I tried to write in poetry about poetry. In other words, I tried to give you a visceral sense of what it was like um, to listen to an Ozzy Osbourne album if I was going to review that album. Um, being a good writer, and you have to write press releases, you have to write bios, in fact, because bios, look, my job was to find your soul if you were my client. Well, did you have to like, did you have to like the performers, what the performer did to do the PR, or did you just uh, do the PR uh, aiming it at a potential audience? Well, no, I, I had to find a genuine validity in that performer to work with a performer. And in fact, performers are not casual people. They have taken their entire teenage years and dedicated them. They have dedicated their entire lives to the biggest gamble you can possibly take, which is on a career in the music business. Because out of every million people who try it, one person succeeds. That is an enormous gamble. So if these kids are going to plunk their entire lives on the roulette wheel um, of music, there's almost invariably something very valid in what they are doing. There is a God usually inside of them, and you can find a validity inside of them. So I tried to find the valid within these people that I worked with. Well, and when you was, represented or advocated for someone like Alice Cooper, who who chopped up baby dolls on stage, did you ever worry about the violence uh, that yes, I, you, you might be inciting violence uh, as a, a promoter of that? Yes, I absolutely did worry about violence. I thought of it as it could be one of two things. It could be exercise for the animals in the brain, in which case it was harmless, or it could be leading kids to violence. And it wasn't until the 1990s and 2000s that the answer emerged, because I used to worry about that a lot, Leonard. Um, and the answer emerged when we had things like uh, even more violent than Alice Cooper chopping up baby dolls, much more violent. We had violent video games. And after the violent video games came out, the rate of violence, real-world violence, dropped in the United States. It dropped dramatically. It dropped to half of what it had been before Alice Cooper, his axe, and his baby dolls, and before uh, violent video games. So there's uh, the exercise in the animals of the animals in the mind metaphor comes from uh, something that happened at, I believe it was the Seattle Zoo. They bought this gorgeous ocelot, and they were really looking forward to displaying it. And when they got around to finally displaying it, uh, it was on, you couldn't watch the thing because it was all covered with bloody sores, and they couldn't figure out what to do. They tried changing its nutrition. They tried all kinds of things. And then somebody got an idea. Since ocelots hunt birds, and birds are packaged in this terribly inedible stuff called feathers, um, he threw a, a fully feathered uh, chicken, a dead chicken, in with the ocelot. And all of a sudden, and the ocelot started plucking the feathers with its mouth. And once it had feathers to pluck, it no longer plucked at its own fur and turned itself into a bloody mess. So the question was, does, does rock and roll uh, exercise the animals in the brain harmlessly? Does it, does it exercise our violent impulses harmlessly? And apparently both rock and roll and video games um, do exercise them harmlessly because there was this vast drop 
um, in the rate of violence in the culture. Now, for for many years, you represented only white acts, and then uh, Bob Marley, uh, Prince, Michael Jackson. But let's talk about, uh, let's say, ZZ Top. That was one of the early ones. Um, uh, they were relatively unknown at the time, and they weren't exactly a favorite of the critics. So how important are the rock critics when you're doing PR? Absolutely essential. If um, at that point the, the head of the rock crit elite, which is a name that he gave to his group of friends, um, was Bob Criscow at the Village Voice. Mm -hmm. And if Bob Criscow liked you, that was it. You, you had an avalanche of positive press for the rest of your career. If Bob Criscow didn't like you, you could have an avalanche of negative press or no press at all. So um, capturing the attention of the critics, gaining their respect, was intensely important. It was one of the most important facets of the job. Now, how did you wind up with clients? For example, Queen was already famous when uh, they asked for your help, but um, the, but, uh, the police, for example, or some of the others, uh, were they relatively unknown at first? Um, some people that came to me were well-known, others weren't. I, I, um, I got started as uh, the founder of a public and artist relations department for Gulf and Western's 14 record companies. And, um, and that's when I started working with Black X, because our A&R guy, nothing that he signed was ever going to get anywhere, ever. And he walked in, but he was a very pleasant man and just filled with energy. And he walked into my office one day, and he gave his usual song and dance. Um, he'd found this artist who was going to be dynamite. She was going to be a gorilla. She was going to be a superstar. And, um, and I knew that that meant automatically she, we'd never hear of her again. And then he dropped a bomb on me. He said, I've got her playing at the Plaza Hotel tomorrow in a showcase, and I, I want you to come. Well, I'm the head of artist relations, not just public relations. That means I have to show our artists that we care about them. So it was my job to be there at the showcase the next day. And, Leonard, it was one of the most astonishing experiences I have ever had. This squashed-looking, four-foot, eight-inch-tall, 13-year-old, African-American woman steps, well, she's not exactly a woman, she's still a girl, steps onto the stage. There are 150 people in the audience. It's as if she has grabbed each one of us by the esophagus, and she has put her chin up to ours, her nose up to hers. She has locked our eyes in her eyes, and she is telling us to stand, roll over, pant, and obey for the next 45 minutes. She has us under her total control the next 45 minutes. It was bloody astonishing. And so, she was? Stephanie Mills. Uh -huh. um, so I just, with this talent, there was nothing I was going to, I mean, I had to make her happen. It was what she deserved. She was just amazing, a force of nature. And so we started doing tons of publicity. I say we because I had a staff of five people. And um, and we were, do, we were on a roll with Stephanie Mills, and then she got a part in the very first black musical written by blacks, composed by blacks, choreographed by blacks, produced by blacks, and directed by blacks. It was called The Wiz. It just happened to be an adaptation of the first book in the Oz series, and I had read the Oz books from cover to cover, all 38 of them, when I had been 10 years old. That's what got me started on reading. Curious coincidence. At any rate, um, the, uh, 
actual Broadway PR people were doing, so far as I could see, just about nothing um, for The Wiz, which, in which uh, Stephanie Mills had gotten the lead role of Dorothy. And so I took over, and we got so much publicity for Stephanie and The Wiz that it was absolutely ridiculous. So that's the reason I hadn't worked on black acts up until then was because I rapidly discovered at Circus that my readers, my suburban white males, age, average age, 16.5 years, did not want to have anything to do with black acts. So anything I put about a black act in the magazine was a waste of a page, and I rapidly learned I couldn't afford to waste even a postage stamp size piece of a page, much less a whole page. But now I was in a different world, and now I, I started working with black acts. And then I was credited when Gulf and Western was able to sell its record holdings to ABC for a lot of money. I was credited as being the reason they were able to do it. I was credited with having doubled the value of the company. And I I'm speaking. With, I, got, I got to just tell people that they're listening to Let It Look at It Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, the FCC insists. Uh, and I might as well tell our listeners that my guest is Howard Bloom, whose latest book is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. I should also point out there's a, a film coming out this month about you as well. Uh, well, wait, there's a whole, it's, a, it's all very mixed up. There's a film that came out in November um, called uh, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom. And uh, it uh, debuted in New York at the... Um, uh, Doc NYC Film Festival on November 10th and sold out a 224-seat theater. Um, it then had its West Coast debut at the Santa Barbara International Film well, people Festival. People were still going to movies in those days. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we didn't have COVID. And it was just accepted three days ago for the Raw Science Film Festival, which takes place in L.A. And the head of the festival explained to me that she intends to have a live festival this year that is 2020 come hell or high water. So we'll see if she's able to pull well, it off. She's very determined. Howard, I want to get to a lot of other stuff. Uh, you represent, Queen helped you get involved with Bob Marley, who didn't really have much of uh, a, a, a black audience at that time. Uh, so um, uh, you, what did you have to do to, to, to build a fan base for him in the black community? Well, Chris Blackwell, who was the founder of Island Records and the man who put reggae on the map and a friend of Bob Marley's, um, and Bob Marley's basic manager for all practical purposes, Chris Blackwell asked me if I could do anything for Bob. And he explained Bob's situation very simply. Um, he said Bob can sell out a 120,000-seat soccer stadium any place in the world he wants. But in the, in the United States, the most he can sell is 30,000 tickets in New York City. Can you do anything to expand his audience? And I said, yes, of course. I've become the leading black publicist in the music industry. I have a better relationship with the black weeklies all over the country than, uh, than just about any other publicist, including the black publicists. And um, what Bob Marley is missing is a black uh, African-American base. And there are two reasons. One reason is because Bob is from the islands. And uh, the African-American community and the island black community are different subcultures, and they don't like each other, not at all. Reason number two is that because Chris is so brilliant at what he does and has worked with Cream and Cat Stevens and all kinds of white uh, artists, um, he managed to establish Bob with a white college-going audience. And Bob has never been established with a black African-American audience. 
and I just happen to specialize in that audience. So I will establish Bob with that audience. And that's how we began our campaign with Bob Marley. And indeed, it was working until one day. Go ahead. Until one day I got a phone call. And the phone caller said um, it was the handler that, uh, that Chris Blackwell had working on a daily basis with Bob Marley, wherever Bob Marley was. And she said, I got bad news. Bob Marley has terminal cancer. Hmm. Now, and two of the other famous acts, black acts that you had, uh, had uh, large white fan bases. They also ended tragically. And speaking of Prince and, and Michael Jackson. Prince uh, and Michael Jackson, yes. Uh, the, and the, Maybe you and, were bad luck. I don't know, Leonard, but those are my babies. Those two people, those two human beings who were so precious to me are my babies. And I... I cannot talk of them in the past tense because they are an integral part of who I am. And you asked what the first two rules of, of uh, science had to do with working on rock and roll. Michael Jackson was the incarnation of the first two rules of science. He lived the truth at any price, including the price of your life. That's the rule of courage. And Michael had courage. He was willing to do absolutely anything to give his audience the kind of awe, surprise, and wonder that he got out of every day. He could see the infinite and the tiniest of things. He felt that was a gift from God. And he felt that because God had given him that gift, it was his job to give that gift to his kids. And He was already a star when he came to you, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, it was 1983? Brother. Yeah, his brothers came to me. And I turned them down, and I was turning them down for four months. And then they I finally got a call from the manager saying the brothers are coming into New York, and they want to see you. Well, I had, you know, I didn't grow up with other human beings, and I don't know much about human rituals, but I had heard this phrase, to be a mensch, if you want to say no to somebody, you say no to them to their face. So I had to say yes to at least a meeting so I could tell them that I didn't want to work with them. And when I walked into the room, there was some dark and malevolent force um, in that room that you could feel, but you couldn't name, you couldn't use words for. And it was obvious that something was really seriously wrong here. And if you need me, I mean, if, if you're doing extremely well, you don't need me. We can get a talking dog to say the Jacksons on the phone, and he'll get magazine covers wherever he wants. But if you've got a crusade for me, if you've got a dark and evil force that needs to be overcome, then I'm your man. I he also, there was a lot of controversy around him. And of course, uh, well, not yet. Not yet. The, contra uh, the, the public view of Michael was all positive in those days, except, but you're right, there was, an, there was an incipient controversy. Somebody had started leaking copies of unsigned contracts with potential promoters for the Jackson's Victory Tour. It was going to be the first tour in which Michael was touring with his brothers, in which their father was going to be involved, a tour that would bring together the whole family for the first time in years. It was a major deal. And Michael had just sold 36 million copies of one album. And nothing like that had ever happened in the history of the music industry. That's, that's the record sales of the Beatles and the record sales of Elvis Presley um, combined for all practical purposes. It, Were many of his problems with the press caused by Don King? Um, they, it, it, it was deliberately set up so it would look that way. But no, it wasn't being caused by Don King. There was some invisible figure behind the scenes who knew exactly how to work the press. 
Now, the press works on a domino effect. If you manage to get stories in one of the lead publications, um, all the other publications will follow. So if you have positive press in the New York Times or Rolling Stone, all the other press in the country will be positive. And there was a person who knew how to operate that domino stack and who had good contacts with the lead dominoes, who started leaking negative material about Michael Jackson. Uh, well, there were some awful things, including his relations with children. No, that was much later. That was the 1990s. Mm -hmm. This was 1983. That stuff, nobody had any suspicion that whatever Rouse had said, because I don't think Michael ever did it, but I don't know. Leonard, well, I'm not we, in his we're, bedroom. we're pretty much out of time, but do you think ah. that his drug addiction was encouraged by the people around him? Uh, it was encouraged by the people around him, and he, was, he spent 50 years on this planet. For 25 years, he was climbing to become Michael Jackson. For the next 25 years, he was dangling on the cross. And it was that position dangling on the cross that I believe drove him into the drug, drug use to fall asleep at night. And then you, because you developed chronic fatigue syndrome, you pretty much dropped out of the business? I absolutely dropped out of the business. I walked into my office one day and I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. For all I know, I'm dying, but I'm giving you the business. I'll be out of here in two weeks. And for oh, the next 15 years, I was in my bed. And, and it's too late to go back into it. It's a different business nowadays anyway. Yeah, and uh, plus my background is science. I was doing all this for the sake of science. I was on a search for the gods inside of us. I was on a search for soul. And this happened to be my way of doing it once I realized that grad school was going to be Auschwitz for the mind, and I would never get anywhere near the ecstatic experience and the crowd experience um, that shapes the forces of history the experience that I was looking for that was my scientific mission, or at least one of them in life. So I was able to go back to my science, and that's where I really belong. Thank you so much for being on our show today. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, don't forget that you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And we hope you'll follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, LeonardLopinAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. A big thanks to uh, anyone on the front lines of confronting the coronavirus, the medical workers, grocery store workers, delivery workers, and also our engineer, Reggie Johnson, and the entire operations staff back at WBAI who've made it possible for me to do this show from the safety of my home throughout this pandemic. Please join us again. We'll see you then.